Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And you're here. We're here. Welcome back. It's Let's Hear It. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. It's another edition. Mr. Brown, how are you? I'm here. Oh, come on. <laughs> you said I was here. Hey, we I need you know. to be more than here. We need you to, I don't Statement know, of cheating. fact. It's true. You are here. How are you doing, by the way? I'm delighted. I'm delighted to be here with you, Kirk. Oh, see, I'm delighted too. I'm delighted Aww. that you're here. You know what? Also, I'm delighted by our topic this week because I feel like we're doing a little um, mini circuit on philanthropy well, and how to do philanthropy well. And I think we've got a good. really good contributor here this week. Would you agree? I, I certainly would. This week, I spoke with Chris Putnam Walkerly, who is a, a consultant consulting on philanthropy. I You probably have seen her name a million places. She has a book out right now called Delusional Altruism, Why Philanthropists Fail to Achieve Change and What They Can Do to Transform Giving. And I, I do agree that we have had a lot of conversations about how do you do philanthropy. And I think that Chris has a really easy to digest resource that adds to that conversation and brings a tremendous amount of gravitas spent 20 years or spent time at Packard has a 20 year tenure doing this work Chris Putnam Walkerly here on let's hear it let's listen and then Eric will come back and talk welcome to let's hear it my guest today is Chris Putnam Walkerly who is the author of a new book she's a consultant to foundations and an author of a new book called Delusional Altruism, Why Philanthropists Fail to Achieve Change and What They Can Do to Transform Giving. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. Let's hear it. Oh, Eric, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we have a lot in common because we consult to foundations. Yes. And on this show, I've said uh, many, many times that nobody, as a child, nobody crawls into mom's bed and says, mommy, daddy, I want to work for a foundation. But I will tell you that there is truly nobody who has ever crawled into their parents' bed and said, mommy, daddy, I want to be a consultant to a foundation. <laughs> That's like, you know, the seventh circle of hell. Tell me what, <laughs> tell me how you got into this business. Why? Why, why are you here? You know, it's funny, you reminding me of a couple early childhood memories. So one was watching the television with my mom and the news came on and there was a, the caption of the person said philanthropist. And I asked my mom what that was. And I, I thought that was very intriguing. Uh, and then I had this kind of vague memory of sometime in high school having this like foreshadowing where I knew that one day I would be a consultant and I was overcome by the sense of dread. <laughs> <laughs> or just sadness. <laughs> but fast forward, I love what I do. So it's all good. I, I guess I figured it out. 
<laughs> little Johnny, what do you want to be? I want to be an astronaut. Little Mary, what do you want to be? I want to be an astronaut. Chris, what would you be? I'd like to be a consultant to a foundation, to a philanthropist. Uh, how did you get into this? How did you get into this work? What? How did this happen? What, well, went, you know, what went wrong? I, uh... <laughs> no, I always was focused on the nonprofit sector and thought I would you know, be running a nonprofit social service agency, but ended up working at Stanford University as an evaluator of youth and gang violence prevention programs. And it was funded by the California Wellness Foundation. So their first big initiative focused on violence prevention. And I, I took a look at them and thought to myself, well, you know, if, if you're a foundation, you have access to wealth, right? That's kind of the starting point. But if you're really smart about it and you bring in the right experts and look at best practices and really get good advice and think through what's the right intervention, how can we really make a difference, you can create lasting change. And so I thought that was quite intriguing and decided to go work for a foundation. So I went to work at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation. Heard of that. I figured yeah. at the time I'd pick one of the largest in the country. Yes, I'm sure you know them well. And they were and, just down um, the street, so you, you could walk. <laughs> exactly. That's good. And so that was great. I had a great experience, very strategic funder. I learned a lot and began consulting on the side, really subcontracting to other consultants. And that was during the dot-com boom. We were in Silicon Valley, San Francisco. So philanthropy was flourishing and foundations were hiring consultants. And I discovered not only did I like working with philanthropy, but I liked consulting to funders. And so decided to go out on my own, did a lot of work with the Charles and Helen Schwab Foundation for a number of years. And it's been over 20 years ever since. Yes, and I saw that Christy Kimball blurbed your book. By the way, your book, we'll get to that soon, a very well-blurbed book. You clearly <laughs> well-blurbed. Well I've not blurbed. heard that. <laughs> One of the best blurbed books of the year, I will tell you that much. And it's really good, by the way. We'll, we'll get to that somewhere. I also joke that people who work at foundations are like kids on a playground who watch the other children play because, yes. you know, the, they're... <laughs> They don't actually do work. They watch other, they help facilitate other people's work. And the consultants to the foundations are like the kids who watch the kids who watch the kids play. It gets a little (laughs) meta. But so let's talk about this a little bit. I was going to wait till we got to the second half of the show to to talk about the book. I just want to dive right in. For starters, there's no shortage of books about how to do philanthropy. And as I look up onto my shelf, I see Giving Done Right by Phil Buchanan. I see Money Well Spent by my old boss, Paul Brest. Behind me, I see, hold on, I turn around, Winners Take All by our good friend Anandjir Dadas. So there are a lot of books about how to do philanthropy, about what's right with philanthropy, and what's wrong with philanthropy. What did you feel like you had to add to this conversation? Well, after advising and consulting to foundations and high net worth donors, really of all sizes and types over 20 years, I came to realize that, you know, they, for the most part, are genuine in their desire to be altruistic and to make a difference and change the world, but are often getting in their own way. And they're actually preventing themselves from having the impact that they want to be having or think that they're having, and often don't even realize that that's going on, that they don't realize they're getting in their own way. And really, that's the delusion in the title, Delusional Altruism. It's not that funders are crazy. Uh, It's that they kind of cling on to misguided beliefs and practices that prevent them from creating the change that they want to create. And so I really wrote the book to help them see how that happens and then very practical guidance and advice on what they could be doing differently to have a more transformational impact on the issues and communities they care about. 
So obviously delusional altruism is a fun, you know, is a fun way to talk about what most philanthropists go through. Can you talk a little bit about the delusional part? Let's get a little more into the, to, like, what, what, why are they so delusional? Well, you know, one of the biggest challenges is a scarcity mindset. I think most people equate wealth to a sense of abundance and an abundance mindset, but I really think one of the biggest self-created problems that philanthropy has is a mindset of scarcity. And by that, I mean this kind of misguided belief that by maintaining a Spartan operation, you are somehow delivering greater value to the communities that you're serving, right? And so obvious example is funders that aren't investing enough in the nonprofits they're trying to support. So by insisting upon minimum overhead, or you know the whole notion of you can only support organizations where 99 cents of every dollar goes to the community and only one cent for overhead administration, and to me you know and also doling out grants in one-year increments and putting very tight restrictions on exactly how the money cannot can and can't be used, to me is a scarcity mindset because you know as a as a foundation as a donor, if you really believe in a cause and there's a nonprofit that you think is doing great work and having an impact then don't you want them to be the strongest they could possibly be? Don't you want them to have top talent and fabulous you know, financial management systems and a great fundraising apparatus and the ability to evaluate themselves, a great board of directors, a strategic plan that they're implementing, all of these things, like of course you do, but we don't invest in those sufficiently. There are of course efforts as of late to increase that kind of investment. But I also think that scarcity mindset turns on the funder themselves. And I don't think foundations, donors, family offices invest enough in themselves, in their own learning capacity, technology, relationship building with grantees, all the things that I think funders need to be successful, they also don't invest sufficiently in themselves. And sometimes that's out of guilt. And sometimes it's out of this misguided belief that they're being better stewards of their money by not investing in their own talent, evaluation, communications, you name it, strategy. But I believe to have the greatest impact you want to have as a funder, you need to be the best philanthropist you can be. And I don't mean, you know, taking your board on a board retreat to the Four Seasons in Maui, although that would be lovely. I, you know, I mean like taking time to build relationships with grantees or thinking about how do we rethink our systems and our grant making process to make it easier for the nonprofits we support. Well, there's, I think there's a huge paradox here in a sense, because on the one hand you say, and I think quite correctly, that a lot of foundations spend way too much time contemplating the contours of their navels, that they, <laughs> they'll spend you know eight months coming up or a year doing a strategic planning process, or they'll the just do a whole lot of inward yes. whatever, churning and whatever you want to call it, uh, and not nearly enough, just kind of moving quickly, making decisions, getting the money out there, learning from ones, you know, like all that stuff. And at the same time, however, you do have to invest in people, systems, technology, the things that you need to do in order to learn and to share, you know, to spend the money. How do you figure out how to find that beautiful balance between navel gazing 
and action <laughs> and investing in the tools you need to do the things you need to do and whatever being let's just say overly lavish or or wasting the money on things that don't mm -hmm. matter how, how does I, you know it's in this book but can you talk us through how a philanthropist can begin to square that circle or or you know reconcile that seeming paradox yeah. Well, you touched on another delusion that I address in the book, which is that philanthropists move too slowly. And, you know, if you've ever, ever seen the movie Zootopia, you know that there's a scene in which the two main characters, who are two animals, rush into the Bureau of Mammal Vehicles to find their missing otter friend. And they, you know, rush in and are horrified to realize that the Department of Mammal Vehicles is staffed entirely by sloths. And so, you know, what should take two minutes takes all day to get the information they need because of the slow moving sloths. And, you know, it's excruciatingly painful to watch a sloth move really, really slowly. And I think it's as excruciatingly painful to watch philanthropists move that slowly too. And you touched on the classic example, which is strategic planning. You know, too often funders embark on these, you know, one year or 18 month strategic planning development exercises to create a three to five to 10 year plan. And I think if this pandemic has shown us anything, it's the futility of spending a year to create a strategy because by the time you know, you've created your plan, the world will have changed. And you know, I think what happens is part of it is a scarcity mindset. So setting aside the notion of scarcity being about financially investing in anything, part of it is a mindset. And part of it is a belief, for example, that you don't trust yourself to make a decision. That's I think very dominant experience in philanthropy. And I think what they do to compensate is often engaging in extensive data gathering exercises, right? These kind of one-off, we're going to do strategic planning, therefore we need to take a year, we're going to stop grant making, and we're going to learn. We're going to go on a learning tour, we're going to have focus groups, we're going to go about the state and, you know, meet with different grantees and talk to them and learn and gather all this information, conduct environmental scans, hire a bunch of consultants to do all this work, and a year later, you know, often they're so overwhelmed by the data that they're collecting uh, that they don't quite know what to do with it. But, you know, then what happens, just to take this kind of slow process a little bit further, there's some series of extensive board meetings, you know, numbers of board meetings where the, you know, staff present all these findings to the board and kind of cajole them into making funding decisions. And then finally, there is a strategic plan create, you know, developed at least uh, on paper and then they go about spending often months to professionally write it and graphically design it until it's perfect looking. And then we're not done yet. Then they say, well, this we can't start implementing it till the board officially approves it and they don't meet for two more months. Right. So now it's like two years since you started your process. How could your strategy possibly be relevant at that point? And I honestly, I think what funders should realize is that they probably know. 80% of what they need to know to answer any problem or any question, right? If they just, if we just took the time, and this is true for all of us as consultants, as uh, business owners, if we just spent, I don't know, two hours or a week, you know, internally brainstorming, what do we know about our community and the current needs? What data exists that we can quickly take a look at? Summarize that like really briefly and then figure out, okay, well, there's 20% we don't know. Like there's still missing information, but let's spend much more limited time and resources going after that, those specific bits of information to inform our work or have the confidence that we're gonna figure it out along the way. 
and make our, you know, develop a, a quick strategy for the next year to guide our work. And I mean quick, like a couple of weeks, not even necessarily a couple <laughs> of months. We had a couple of radical ideas in this book. One is the seven-week strategic plan, and then there's the seven-hour strategic yes. plan, to which I yes. say, shut the front door, a seven-hour strategic plan. But w- what this reminds me of is that w- what I, I got out of this was that we don't we think we don't know the things that we do yes. know, yes. and we think we probably do know the things that we yes. don't know. <laughs> And we know a lot more than we think we do, but we don't know a lot of the, well, some of the things that we, that we think we do. And if you can flip this, so, you know, 80% of the stuff you need to know, give or take, mm-hmm. you actually already know, instead of having to go out and reinforce that thing that you know and spend a whole lot of time kind of reminding yourself how, what you already knew, uh, th- then you can kind of dispense with that. And the what's left is genuinely asking these legitimate questions about what's what don't I know and what do I need to know in order to make the right kinds of decisions. And I assume that's where consultants come in sometimes, but not always. How, how, how can you kind of give an example of of something you've seen in which that went the way you would predict or the way you would recommend? Who who has got that? Right, or if you don't, if you don't want to name names, can you like you can anonymize it a bit, but kind of give us a, tell us a story about how someone did that right, because we you know we all learn by example. Yeah, well, I'm thinking of one family foundation which I won't name, but you know, uh, kind of a small you know regional foundation, and went about strategic planning, uh, and I coached their CEO and her number two person to do all of this work. But basically, you know, they had a variety of funding areas, let's say five funding areas in their greater city, like the city and kind of the greater surrounding area they funded in. And really part of the goal was to narrow the focus. And so, you know, they spent some time themselves reflecting on their past grant making, what was working well, what wasn't working so well, their recent experiences, evaluations they had conducted, you know, the, the existing data and quite frankly, knowledge in their brains that they had about those communities and those issues did a little bit of, you know, in, you know, exploring and talking to a few grantees and then summarized that and then thought, well, if we were going to make some changes, like what, what do we specifically not know about what's happening around, you know, housing or community development or whatever the issues were. And then they went about and collected that information. You know, they specifically sought who are the, I don't know, three or four experts in our community that could answer these questions. What are the reports that could provide us some data? And they went after that. And so it was a much more simple um, exercise for them. And also it prevented them from data dumping on their board of directors, right? Because that was sort of their tendency was to like overwhelm the board with data to demonstrate that they had done all this research, right? But it was really more about, well, what's actually the most important and salient points that you need to share to help your board understand what's happening, what the needs are, and why it would make sense to focus on a more limited number of areas to have greater impact. Yeah, we're we're going to take a quick break with Chris Putnam Walker Lee and be back in just a minute. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. 
Welcome back to Let's Hear It. I'm speaking with Chris Putnam-Walkerly, who's the author of Delusional Altruism, Why Philanthropists Fail to Achieve Change and What They Can Do to Transform Giving. And this is, so you've written this book, and it's a very easy read, in, which is not to say that it's simplistic. <laughs> it is just direct and simple. I found it to be like really, really smart and, and straightforward. And it's <laughs> there are also some kind of tips on how to just get stuff done. <laughs> you don't even have to be a philanthropist or do work in a foundation for this to be useful. Well, it, it seems to me that this book is for anybody who gives because it uh, this can apply to anybody's individual giving as much as it could be for the CEO of a big foundation. Yes. But one of the interesting things that I have found is that most individual giving, most people sit around the kitchen table, usually in December, right before you know the, the, their ta- they can get their tax break, uh, and they write a bunch of checks to a lot of organizations, and they're basically general support. They don't require a whole bunch of research. They also aren't the product of a strategy either. Can individuals put together a, whatever, a philanthropy strategy without complicating them their <laughs> lives. And it's like, how, how, how do these things go together? Yeah. I think, you know, it's funny. I think in general, philanthropy tends to complexify the simple rather than simplify the complex. Uh, yes, because I think a strategy is this. It's getting clarity on what kind of philanthropist you want to be in a year? What kind of impact do you want to be having a year from now? on your community or whatever issue it is that you care about. And then looking at where are you today? You know, like literally, do you, have you even thought about this before or have you been doing this for a hundred years? Wherever you are today and then figuring out, okay, great. Well, what are the three to four most important critical factors or top things that we need to focus on to get us from where we are today to where we wanna be 12 months from now And then figuring out, well, how will we be accountable to making that happen and literally assigning people. Now, I guess if you're the only donor, (laughs) you're assigning yourself. But, you know, if you're a family or you're a couple or you're a small foundation, whatever company, who are the, you know, two to three people that are going to take accountability for implementing and focusing on those priorities, those critical issues, and then beginning to do that immediately and starting with coming up with a list. My priority is to, we wanna support um, domestic violence uh, issues because it's really important. And of course, during this pandemic, uh, these people have been you know, potentially stuck with their abuser, but we don't really know much about it beyond that, right? So my priority is to learn about domestic violence in our community and identify three to four top nonprofits that we think are doing really good work and um, come with some recommendations of who we could fund and, and, and how, right? That's pretty straightforward. Uh, it doesn't take a consultant <laughs> to help you figure it out, right? Uh, but I, so again, it's just clarity on what are you trying to accomplish? Where are you today? And how do you get from where you are today to where you want to be? But, but critically to stay focused on that and begin doing that immediately. And I think that's really, it's the same thing for, honestly, the Hewlett Foundation, the Packard Foundation, the Gates Foundation. Yes, those are more complex organizations. But at the end of the day, that's, I think where any funder should be thinking about strategy. Thanks for that. That's that's really helpful and actually something I want to start to apply in December. I, I'd like to talk a little more about the field of philanthropy in general. There's this feels like a, a an inflection point for some reason. Not the least of which is because of all the books that are being written about philanthropy, but there's a debate around whether 
philanthropy is a is, is efficient, whether it does the things that it's supposed to do, frankly, whether it's hoarding wealth and whether it's part of a system that perpetuates its uh, the, the wealth that pre- created it. Uh, and a number of foundations are starting to think about uh, spending themselves down. The Atlantic Philanthropies just spent itself out of business and a number of others are going on like that. Do you have any thoughts about that, having seen how philanthropies, so many foundations operate should they be allowed to operate in perpetuity should we make a requirement that they pay out more quickly what are your what are your thoughts about the current state of the foundation world and philanthropy in general yeah i agree with you there's a lot happening and a lot of opinions flying around but you know i yes i in general i do believe that philanthropy foundations should be able to exist in perpetuity i mean i think it's great that there are increasing efforts to support funders to think about their lifespan and that it does not have to be in perpetuity, right? That sort of had been the assumption. And there's been a lot of efforts among many funders to not only try spending down within a period of time, 10, 25 years, but also to educate the field about what that means, the things you need to think about, the considerations. Uh, Barbara Kibbe, for example, of the Bechtel Foundation helped support a, a foundation review journal that was specifically about exit strategies. So I think there's a lot of great work in that. I disagree with the notion of legislating spend downs or necessarily increasing the payout rate. I do believe those can be very good strategies to increase payout and to spend down more rapidly. But I also believe that you know we need as a country and a world to assume that there'll be crises in the future, right? And we need to prepare for those, be prepared for those. And I personally want my children, my great great grandchildren, when they're addressing, you know, their COVID of whatever that will be in the next century, I want there to be philanthropic dollars available to respond quickly, to test out new ideas, to advocate for certain policies, to get the word out, to you know whatever it is to be in, to innovate. That's my biggest hesitation around requiring any kind of spend down among funders. But even thinking about payout. I'm grateful for efforts that have been encouraging funders to increase payout rates. But, you know, that's a, that's a, I think a decision that each foundation needs to make. And it really, I mean, their investment strategy is based on their payout rate. And, uh, you know, so it has a lot of implications in, in terms of what they're able to do and how long they'll be able to continue. Getting back to the book a little bit in, in the few minutes we have left, this is full of really good lessons, and, and you're, you're very good about making lists. Can you just kind of talk us through, if you were a uh, foundation were to come in and say, hey, Chris, can you help me think about how to do a better job, be more efficient, get better outcomes? What are the two or three questions that they need to consider and that any foundation really should consider when looking at their own strategy and trying to understand, are we making the kind of difference we need to make? Well, I think it's a great question. And in fact, in the book, I, as you probably know, I have a whole chapter devoted to the right questions that I think all funders should be asking. And, you know, I think the fir- one of the first is to focus on the what before the how. So too often, I think funders and anyone, nonprofits, businesses get focused on the tactics before they have clarity on their strategy. They focus on the how we're going to do something before they have clarity on the what they're going to do. And so I think to the point earlier, when you're thinking about your strategy or just trying to create a plan, identify what it is we're trying to accomplish. And only then can you possibly, once you know your objective, only then can you possibly figure out the right way to achieve that objective for yourself. I think another question though is, you know, as we said before, what do we already know? 
So you really gather and capture all that information that you have, but then ask, what don't we know? Because I can guarantee you there's a lot that you still don't know, right? And you know, one of the best sources of information for the what don't we know question is your grantees and the communities that you're trying to serve, because you know, they're the ones that are living the challenges and also the strengths of whatever they're experiencing. And they're the ones that most likely have solutions and ideas to guide funders thinking and to help identify the right kind of solutions and the right kind of funding strategies that can be most helpful to them. There are a variety of tactics that you can do to be effective. One of the things that I noticed, and of course it warms the cockles of my heart, is an understanding that you need to you need to have a communications approach mm-hmm. that that your communications work is really yes. important. How did you come to that realization? Because obviously I agree, but why is communication such an important component of a grant making strategy? You know, interestingly, I'm not a communications consultant, but I actually believe that communications is really essential, an essential part of philanthropy, because at the end of the day, you know, you're trying to create change, right? And so part of that is communicating to others what needs to be done differently, or sharing what you're learning with the field, or communicating internally as to what's working well, what isn't working well. I mean, you know, one of the challenges, going back to the slowness and the, you know, sort of one-off data gathering exercises that foundations undertake, which are very expensive and time-consuming, you know, on a periodic basis, philanthropy is comprised of smart people, like really knowledgeable, right? If we only documented and captured what we what we are learning in real time and shared it amongst each other on a regular basis, like at staff meetings or whatever, and then made decisions based on that and made changes based on that, we wouldn't need, so that's a communication to me, an internal communication exercise that's uh, very powerful because you're doing real time learning uh, as an organization and then you're constantly basing what you're doing on what's actually happening, what's working, what's not working, what new trends you're seeing and experiencing in ways that are meaningful and allow you to take action. Right now during the pandemic, there is a particular foundation that is spending $350,000 on consultants to conduct strategic planning. And the first year of this is is data gathering, right? It's a community foundation. They should know their community, right? So I think, so part of it is, you know, how do you, A, recognize that you have a lot of knowledge and experience that you can bring to bear on this? And B, how do you communicate that internally? But also, you know, how do you communicate that externally? And I I think philanthropy talks a good talk about how communication is, is important, but it often is the thing that gets left off the table. When you're building the plane while flying it, it's the thing that feels like, oh, we don't have the bandwidth to do that or the money to do that. We'll just toss that off. But, you know, communication begins the moment you open your mouth and start talking about an issue. And if you're not smart about it, then it's not going to be as successful. I, I, I tend to agree with you. I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> so in the just a couple of minutes that we have left, uh, I'd love to know the one thing that you learned in writing this book that you just didn't know you <laughs> You know, the, the, your great discovery. Ooh, that's a great question. Besides the fact that I could write a book <laughs> or how, how long it takes and how hard it is. You know, I guess my great discovery really was, and I write about this, was how fear, the extent to which fear, I think, holds funders back. And, you know, I wrote the book when we were not in the middle of the greatest, you know, global crisis in a century. But, you know, I think fear is really the main reason why funders have the scarcity mindset. 
And I think there's a lot of fear right now that's holding funders back. But, you know, there's so many crises. You can't open the newspaper or your app on your phone without kind of being overwhelmed about the latest development. And, you know, there's so much unknown. The future is unknown. We don't know what's going to happen. And But the reality is that the future is always uncertain. And it's no more uncertain today than it was last year or last decade or last century. And one of the things I'm advising funders to do now is to, rather than allow that fear of the unknown future paralyze us to actually let it free us and let us recognize that we can't possibly control for every contingency, control every contingency. So like stop trying and instead rapidly create a plan, like plan ahead. So you can still, I think now create your strategy quickly. You can plan your next year. You can plan your communications plan. You can plan your wedding, you know, whatever you're trying to do, but to, to rethink how you're doing that so that you are building in agility. You know, you're thinking ahead to the next six to 12 months and identifying the three to four things that are most important, but you're also recognizing that, yeah, things will change externally, internally, but we're prepared for it because we've been building our agility muscles and our pivoting muscles and our adaptive muscles in the past year. And we can keep that going and really building in time, literally like in your schedules, every quarter, every two weeks to check in on progress what's working, what's not working, what should we abandon, what do we need to add, has something changed in the environment that causes us to have to shift, so that we always have a, an active, sentient, dynamic game plan that's relevant to what's going on, that we can focus and align our efforts on and actually make progress on. And I, you know, to me, this is so important. I actually just wrote a guide about this to help funders. So if your listeners might be interested, it's called Eight Things Every Philanthropist Can Do to Change the World, Even When the World Keeps Changing. And they can download it at, if you go to eightthings.org, uh, it's a free download, it's a quick read, and it offers really practical tips that, you know, draw on ideas from the book, but also, you know, give some practical guidance to help funders plan ahead into 2021 and beyond. Well, that's that's great. Yeah. So stop doom scrolling. Get out of bed. Put on your pants and keep moving. So that be a shark, be a shark, not a sloth. Thank you so much, Chris. Chris Putnam Walkerly. You're the author of Delusional Altruism: Why Philanthropists Fail to Achieve Change and What They Can Do to Transform Giving. It's a really good read, and I, I really appreciate it. And I, I thank you so much for for speaking with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Eric, for having me. And we're back. So Eric, this was a great conversation. And actually, one of the things I want to jump to, it's it was sort of, you know, again, your classic 20 minute moment, you know, you kind of get in, you're getting into stuff. Communications as a philanthropic tool and a communications as a philanthropic asset. Who knew? Who knew? But when Chris Putnam Walkerly was talking about it, she really talked about it. First of all, she said it's essential. So thank you very much. That must have been checks in the mail, Chris. Did you right? Did you give her some notes? But she made me think about communications, not just kind of that, you know, us to them concept of, you know, working in a change modality, but she also talked about it as a tool that you use internally to share learning and get everybody aligned and to have that regular heartbeat of reflection so that you can adapt, adapt quickly and actually get about the work you're trying to do. 
And I thought that was a really cool way to be thinking about communications amongst all these other ways we've been talking about it. And I don't know how many times we've actually had a chance to talk about that part of it, the internal shared learning, shared knowledge, shared strategy reflection part that happens, particularly within large foundations. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, you said something that that struck me, which is um, my wife is actually trying to get me to go into a change modality, but <laughs> but you know, we, you know, you can't get blood out of us. We could hope. <laughs> we can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> Poor woman. Um, yes, you're right. Of course, the the this notion, and I and we got into this conversation about the strategic planning and all the navel gazing and the, all mm. that other stuff, and, and I, it works internally and externally that we we. We need to get out of our own damn way, people. Mm. Stop doing so much thinking and try start try doing Do some a little doing. Bit more doing. <laughs> These, this idea that we, yeah, we, that we have to plumb the contours of our navel and and think about something for from every perspective before we start doing anything is is kind of nuts. And I also think that we've been talking about communication strategy for good well, this is our third year yes it is season three third year of doing this congratulations you know and it works internally as well as externally what is it you're trying to achieve who is it you're trying to reach what do you what do they care about how do you create create messages that speak to their values and then you do a bunch of tactics and the same is true internally as it is externally which is who are the people inside your institution who you have you have goals related to and what are their values and how do we find ways to communicate and connect and and work together and build something in partnership. And I think that that's just as true for internal communications as it is for external com- communications. And it is just as applicable to philanthropy as it is to advocacy and power building and movement building and all those other things, because, th- because that is philanthropy is, is just the, those activities through the lens of providing funds to advance something that you care about. Yeah, totally. And, you know, we've talked about even, again, this word communications and what does it mean? And is it too broad of a word? And I feel like what's... It's a crap word. (laughs) It's crap. I hate it, but... It's awful. It's we'll awful. Find some smart person to tell us what what better word to use. If but only right. Sorry, if only there were communications professionals working in the social change space, we might have a better word for communications. But college kids got no shoes. Please continue. So, but the idea that I felt like was implicit in what she was talking about there, and this is why I kind of you know got me on the edge of my seat, was the notion of learning, and how do we learn? How do we create an mm-hmm. environment of learning and? It seems to me that part of what she's saying is that, you know, you can actually learn much more cheaply maybe than you can plan, you know, like, 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 you know, maybe if you could translate some of your planning resources into learning resources by actually getting in the field, getting your hands dirty, but having the space to reflect on what you're hearing, what those feedback back loops are about. It seems like that learning piece is so important. And it's interesting to, you know, for, for as committed to change as we all are and as committed to the work as I know we all are in all these organizations, just the day job, the work is so intense. It makes me wonder how much space do we actually have to learn and do that vital learning that we need to do? What do you think about that? Well, I think was the old uh, joke, like how many therapy patients does it take to ter- change a light bulb? First, the light bulb has to want to change. You actually have to want to learn. <laughs> yeah. 
And I think that's part of the, a little bit of the fallacy of some aspects of our profession, which is that we say we want to learn, but we go in with a whole bunch of ideas about how, what the state of things are and what needs to be fixed and what the problems are and how we're going to come, you know, riding up on our, on our white steed and, and, you know, solve the problems. And I, I think you're right that learning, you know, like you just have to want to learn. You have to be open to not, to, to understand that you don't always know the answer or frankly, that there's no problem to be solved. Mm -hmm. What there are are conditions that we can help support so that folks can do what they do best. And Chris gets into this in the book a lot. And she, she didn't make this up because there are a lot of examples of folks saying, let's just give support to organizations that have, that we know are making a difference. Mm -hmm. And let, let's have faith in them to be able to address the needs of a community or uh, some aspect of our society that we know could use more. Yeah, And I, I think those are, they're very, very, very basic approaches to philanthropy. And yet we are, the, not everyone does it. And I, I think that there's a real need to want to learn, to be willing to not have all of the answers and to support folks who are good at asking questions, who have better understanding of what needs are and what real conditions are on the in the, sort of in the community or in a, a particular field. Well, and how are you supposed to know it? I mean, to your point, often in these conversations, how many people get up when they're five and say, I'm going to go work for a foundation, you know, like that. Like, <laughs> it's so it's a really interesting field. There aren't that many people that have had the experience in the tenure. And so, you know, this is the thing, Chris Putnam Walkerly, we owe you a big thing. She wrote the book. You wrote a book, That's right? Right. Write your book. So, you know, she has this experience. She collects this learning and she takes the risk. She writes the book so other people can learn. And that's just such a valuable contribution um, to the whole field. I mean, so where's your book, Mr. Brown? I mean, and she, and she said, well, you asked say her, that to you. you said, what did you learn? And she said, I could write a book. And that's really hard. Imagine, imagine trying to sit down in the morning, you're by yourself, you've got your coffee, you know, you're trying to churn out the next pages. I mean, so the Chris Putnam Walkerleys of the world, we need to say mighty thanks to you because this is really, really the hard stuff and you're doing it. You're carrying that, you know, that torch or whatever, that flashlight to help others learn and you're bringing that on your own and it's huge. I think it's great. I wrote a limerick once. <laughs> Would you care to Wait, share it? no, I didn't. <laughs> no, certainly not on this. Yeah. No, this is a family Can't memorialize ship. it forever. <laughs> no, it, it, this is terrific. And like I said, there are a number of really good resources out there, and and I think this is up there with them that that we, we need to continue to remind ourselves that in philanthropy, we don't know the people who are doing know. And you're right. So I've said this a million times that the people who work in foundations are like the kids who watch the other children play on the on the <laughs> playground. And I can say this because I with people I know and love. Yeah. And obviously the consultants for the people who work for foundations are even more delusional than the rest <laughs> of us. <laughs> but but it is, I mean, it is really, really true that that there is so much work to be done, that there are so many ways that we can get out of the way so that folks can actually do the things that they do best. And that philanthropy at its best is really great at that. And we, we just have to continue to support 
those kinds of that kind of work. The other thing that philanthropy can do, which I, I think is really important, is the communications around issues and advancing the advocacy for things that work, being able to kind of put a, a, a gentle thumb on the scale of approaches that we see are making a difference in people's lives. That's hugely important. And then also the the testing, the evaluation and the other things, we, we can go in and learn a lot more about why it worked, how it worked, how you can make more of it and sharing that information with others as well. So there's, there's tons and tons of things that philanthropy can do apart from simply just writing a check to organizations that you care the most about or that you think are you know well situated to address issues and support communities and serve people who, who need it. But we, we, there are things that we can do from what we learned out of that by listening carefully. Yeah, yeah. And it made me think, too, when she was describing these processes that can be so time intensive and, you know, be very expensive and, you know, maybe get to right conclusions or not. It just, it's particularly for large organizations or organizations that work at a regional or national level, it struck me how much relationships are at the heart of all of this. And sometimes I wonder, you know, if the time we're spending is actually as much about relationship management and intermediating relationships as anything. And, and it's funny, you know, when you think about that learning environment and just creating the space for learning, she brings up this really important concept of fear, you know, that fear might be at the heart of a lot of what she was calling the scarcity, you know, mindset and just the kind of, and, and, you know, I actually had a lot of empathy for that because I could imagine. And so this is where I'd be curious to get your take on it you're sitting there trying to make the best possible investment that you can. How could that be anything but a completely paralyzing moment for most people, you know, among, yeah. among this infinity of options you could take, right? Yeah. You know, foundations love to talk about risk, you know, <laughs> we risk things, but they don't like to talk about when the risk didn't pan out. Mm-hmm. And I, and it's because they're, they're holding these two things at the same time, which is we really, really want to make a difference and it is it can be unpleasant to talk about failure and yeah. i think that that's that and that's what drives the scarcity mindset is like what if we fail yeah and i i we had a board member at hewlett who was a medical doctor who said that like if every <laughs> this is a, a metaphor that some people don't like but he's, if every appendix you pull out is good you're not doing enough appendectomies oh, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> now mind you <laughs> If the surgeon went in and took out your perfectly healthy appendix, you might not feel so great about it. But I think there's a kernel of truth in that, which is that unless you fail, you did not. If you if you never failed, then you really probably didn't take any risks. And obviously, you don't want to take risks at the uh, at the expense of the livelihoods of uh, of other people. The risks have to be your own. Mm-hmm. They they do not have to be the professional livelihoods or the or communities who you tried some crazy experiment on. I that's that is that's unethical and and you shouldn't do it. The risks have to be that you tried something that didn't work that didn't in which people don't suffer. But the idea is that if you if you always got it right, then you clearly are are playing in the safe zone, and you, the money is probably not as as well used as as if you learn something amazing. And the other thing, of course, is what what does Thomas Edison say? I I didn't, you know, I didn't, what is it? I didn't fail 10,000 times. I learned what didn't work. (laughs) You know, like that's data. That's good. I won't do that 
thing again. Right. So that's the other part of, of things don't turn out the way you think, but then you know what not to do. And then the most important thing is you don't let anybody else go over that cliff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You got to put up the sign that says, don't go over this cliff. There's nothing there. Yeah. And I think that that's where communicating about what, what does and doesn't work is important as well. Well, and she talks about having the agility to do all this. And it's funny as we wrap up, you know, that it, it struck me, the Chris Putnam Walkerleys of the world, their ability to become part of the fabric of these organizations, be that additional voice, actually almost hold some of that risk, you know, because cause they're holding the learning, they're holding the facilitation so maybe it's a little less risky for the professional staff to stretch out different ways because there's that safe space for them to kind of let's let's keep the fear out of the room a little bit. Let's create just the environment where we can do this. It just really struck me that that's that process well applied. You could only say it's got what an infinite return on investment. I mean, like, could you even quantify it in terms of how it sharpens impact? I don't know. It just it just just that role of that careful partner, that that consultant who can come in and help facilitate the process. It just it jumped out like that. Someone like a Chris Button Walkerly, what what a value add to the whole process. Everybody go hug a when it's safe to do so. Hug a consultant. <laughs> hug a consultant today. Well, that was great. Chris Putnam Walker Lee here on Let's Hear It. That was excellent. Um, the book is Delusional Altruism. You can find it wherever uh, good books are sold. And um, you can find Chris's work at putnamconsulting.com. And she's actually got some really good resources there, including um, what you guys talked about briefly, that the um, the kind of eight key questions or eight steps that people can, can take to do uh, more work with their philanthropy and sharpen it. And so... I'd encourage everybody to go there. But Eric, that was awesome. Thank you for having her on the podcast. That was a really cool conversation. That was great. And thanks again to Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time and Let's Hear It. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it. Listen up now, hear this. Listen up now, hear this. What you got to say, don't fear it. Say it anyway, let's hear it. Listen up now, hear this. Listen up now, hear this. Talking to the crowd and we're it. Say it right out loud, let's hear it. Your point of view is how you view it. Pick up your cue and let's get to it. Can't find the words, then we'll work through it. Have a chat about that, or simply chew the fat. Listen up now, 
hear this Listen up now, hear this There's so much to say, let's cheer it Notions to convey, let's hear it Got some gossip to relay, let's hear it Let's have a little talk, you and me.